today on EdgeFX. To talk about sparrows and spiders and sea slugs and recognize that there's this whole unfathomable diversity in what we so casually call the non-human world. Shelby Brewster speaks with Gemma Deer, researcher in residence at the Rachel Carson Center and author of Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World. They discuss Gemma's book and the connections between humans, language, and the environment. This is Shelby Brewster and Gemma Deer. So thank you for coming to talk about your very recent book, Radical Animism, which is really exciting. So can you talk about how this project came to be, sort of how you started and how you became interested in working on it? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. Like many first books, this grew out of my PhD work, which I did at the University of Sussex in England. And actually, when I began my PhD, I was the kind of environmental aspect, which is so strong in my book that I'm sure we're going to talk about today, wasn't really in the foreground. So the initial idea was just to do a project on animism in four modernist authors. And I got a little bit into the first year of my PhD. I didn't make it very far at all and just got really disillusioned with the notion of doing this kind of literary PhD when around me the environment was breaking down. And so I intermitted, I took a year out and I didn't really intend to go back because I just thought that my energy would be better spent elsewhere. And then after that year, I still felt the same, but I had one conversation with my supervisor, Professor Nicholas Royal at Sussex and somehow he managed to change my mind in this one conversation. But I knew that if I was going to go back and finish the PhD, that it really had to be much more environmentally focused and environmentally engaged if I was going to see the thing through, if I was going to kind of see the point in it. So then, you know, I stuck with the idea of animism because I thought it was actually a really interesting and, and resonant way to think about climate change and the other environmental challenges that we're facing. But it kind of broadened out into thinking these environmental contexts through the notion of animism. And then because I was in an English department and because I am a literary critic, it is still definitely a book of literary criticism, but it kind of broadened out from those initial four authors into something of a rag bag of texts. So there is now Kafka, Wolf, Alice in Wonderland, a couple of contemporary things, Clarice Lispector. So a group of texts that don't immediately call out to be grouped together, but that kind of, I don't know, just presented themselves to me somehow in the course of writing. The whole thing was a little bit chancy, but it did, I hope, come together at the end. Can you talk about the main intervention you're making? You spoke about how this project ended up a lot more environmentally and ecologically focused than you originally intended and how that fits in with this, as you say, ragbag of texts that have all come together. Sure. So the title of the book is Radical Animism. The subtitle is Reading for the End of the World. So I think it's probably helpful here for me to just clarify a little bit about what is animism and the origins of this term. So it came from a Victorian anthropologist called E.B. Tyler, who originally used it in a kind of derogatory sense to refer to so-called primitive religions, kind of belief systems which saw life or agency in non-human or 
non-living things, so trees and rocks and rivers. The notion of a radical animism that my book is trying to put forth is, so the word radical comes from the Latin root. So although radical now has this connotation of revolutionary or left-wing, it literally means at root. So although I don't want to distance myself from those kind of revolutionary connotations, I'm also concerned with a kind of an animism that is fundamental, that is at root to the human way of being in the world. And to recognize that this way of seeing life or agency beyond the living and beyond the human is actually really, really resonant in this age of climate breakdown. And then another key aspect of the book or an aspect of animism that I really try to bring out is the notion of the animism of language and literature. So recognizing that language and literature have a certain life or agency of their own. And the book is framed around what Freud named as these three blows to human narcissism. So Freud said that the self-conception, this kind of narcissistic ego that human beings had, had suffered these three blows in history. Um, the first one being the Copernican revolution, when humans realized they were not the center of the universe. The second one being the Darwinian revolution, when humans realized that they're related to other animals. And then the third one, Freud's says without so much of a hint of irony, the third great <laughs> blow to human narcissism was his own work, the work of psychoanalysis, when humans realize that they're not the agents of a conscious will. And then I argue that in light of climate change, kind of what we see is the resilience of human narcissism. So it's not that we deny the truth of these discoveries, but rather that we have failed to take them into account. We continue to act as if we are the center of the universe or that we're separable from other animals or that we're the agents of conscious wills. And that because of this failure to take them into account, climate change is a direct result of that and comes as this fourth blow to human narcissism, which animistically issues from the earth itself. I'm wondering if we can expand on the connections between the Anthropocene as a concept and human narcissism. If we think about the Anthropocene as the marking of humans on the planet's geological record, that in some interpretations it becomes recentering of the human rather than the disruption or decentering of the human. You talk about in your book the importance of naming, right? So we're talking about naming climate change as the Anthropocene, as the age of the human. What do you make of that, the sort of interpretation of the Anthropocene as itself narcissistic? Yeah, so there are two main critiques of the Anthropocene term, right? So firstly, it's criticized for figuring human agency as this unified force. And then secondly, that it's narcissistic, that it's kind of a way of saying, look, we're so powerful that we're a geological force now. And I kind of, I fall on different sides with these two criticisms. So the first one, you know, is of course extremely important. And I think any thinking of the Anthropocene really needs to take into account this unequal distribution of responsibility. But that second one, I don't personally see it as narcissistic since what characterizes these geological traces, what characterizes becoming geological of the human is entirely unintentional. We didn't start burning fossil fuels to warm the planet. We didn't start using nuclear weapons in order to leave traces in the strata. And so the naming of the Anthropocene somewhat counterintuitively actually marks 
respects the limits of our agency. It, it acknowledges that we're not actually in control of the effects of our actions. So it's not really a monumentalization, but rather it's a kind of really strong revelation of our own materiality and the way that this materiality undercuts the ideals that we have of being primarily rational thinking beings. So I definitely want to come back to the Anthropocene as centering the human. But first, I want to go back to the first group of critiques that you mentioned about presenting the human as unified, right? The equal or unequal distribution of responsibility for the actions that have generated climate change. There are many people who have taken up this critique as a way of getting around this problem, they've presented other alternatives, right? You know, we have the capitalocene, the plantationocene, Cthulhu-scene. What do you make of these proposals? How do they fit with the arguments that you make in your book? So I think these alternative terms are really useful to think with, particularly within academia and as a way of pushing back, I guess, against the objectivity of science. So the term the Anthropocene is this word that has escaped from the world of science and kind of come into popular usage. And then these kind of alternative terms that critique its lumping together of the Anthropos that point out the political and social inequalities of our present and our history. It's like a really good way of signaling that science is not apolitical and science is not without ideology that you know kind of this isn't some objective scientific term this is really it's a loaded term as well so I do really kind of appreciate these alternatives and I think the kind of proliferation of them as well is a sign of just how complex this is and I think you know we kind of need all of them and we can use all of them but at the same time I still think the Anthropocene has value partly because of the cultural traction that it's getting and the way that it does very effectively and simply convey the temporal and spatial vastness of our environmental impact. And it also shows how, you know, geology is this ongoing process that we're a part of and thereby kind of reveals the discrepancy between our senses that kind of see the globe as quite stable and then this much larger reality. So if we think about, as you said, the Anthropocene as a term that has sort of escaped its original contexts and proliferated in all kinds of new ways. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about and seeing is the interpretation of it as another greater level of human mastery, right? Like we've reached the ability to do these technological interventions at the level of the biosphere or, you know, on the geological level. So I'm thinking about things like, oh, we'll just go colonize Mars instead of changing the ways that we relate to the planet around us or other sort of technological solutions. And you wrote that climate change means we need to rethink and remake what it means to be human, or as you put it, quote, to reconfigure it to allow for self-conception that admits that otherness is essential not only to healthy development, but also to any ethical relation to the non-human. What do these ethical relations look like to you in contrast to these sort of what I would call unethical ways of of approaching the Anthropocene if we think about the sort of really super technological solutions that are proposed all the time. Mm -hmm. So 
Just to clarify, that quotation kind of comes right from the end of the book when I've been delving more deeply into Freud's description of narcissism and how it kind of functions in the ego. He talks about it in terms of there always being kind of an amount of libido that you project out to the object, and that is object love. But for a healthy self, you need to retain a little bit of self-love. But narcissism reflects a kind of pathological version of that where you project some kind of ideal ego that your reality can't match up to. And so then you end up repressing the difference between your reality and this ideal that you're projecting. And then in terms of the human as a species, there's the ideal projection of us being the center of a universe and separable from other animals and agents of a conscious will. And then as we've been saying, that's not quite the case. And that is the source of all these pathological relations. And so those technical interventions that you talked about, I really don't think that that those things are rethinking what it means to be human. I think they are precisely following the same trajectory, the same human self-conception that got us here. This progressive, in quote marks, colonial technological human that is based on mastery. And so a reconfiguration of the human self-conception would be one that is much more attentive and open to animistic forces and that therefore recognizes how we are not in control, that we are much more entangled. So it's about setting up a human self-conception that is much more humble and then working with that. And, you know, retaining this kind of healthy amount of narcissism where we aspire to be something, we aspire to be good and to live in a just way, but we don't trick ourselves into thinking that we can be these planetary masters. I want to ask you a little bit more specifically about the animism of language, which is one of the big overarching ideas of your book. If you could speak more about what that means it is and how that shapes ways of being human as we're talking about. Yeah, sure. So for one, language is the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. Human civilization is unthinkable without language. And in the same way that we see science as being capable of objectivity, we see language as this tool that allows us to communicate and quite often fail to notice the ways in which the grammar and the syntax and the vocabulary, we inherit all of this. And it is not an invention of any single human, it too evolved by natural selection. And so when you stop and think, and I'm just thinking it now, the way that everything that I'm saying is flowing reasonably fluently out of my mouth, I'm not particularly constructing these sentences. And yet I have somehow absorbed this grammar and this vocabulary, and it allows me to express myself and it allows me to conceive of myself as a self. And yet it really has an agency of its own. The reason that I privilege literature is because literature is the kind of writing that pays attention to those effects and admits of those effects. So while those linguistic effects are in fact at work in all language, it's really in literature where you see them come to the fore. Because of this, I really tried to write the book in a bit more of a creative way. So if you're a literary critic and you're writing about the literary effects in language, but you're writing about them in this very objective academic tone, it's almost as if you're donning proverbial lab coat and a pair of tweezers and picking apart your text, even though the very 
thing with which you're enacting that analysis is language too. And therefore, all the effects that you find at work in literary texts are at work in the very language that you're using. And so to make room for that, I really wanted the writing of the book itself to be a little bit more playful and to be a little bit like, yeah, this is language too. And like kind of to be awake and alive to all these strange effects. That's something I really appreciated as I was reading your book. The way it was written felt as affecting to me as what you were saying, the content of what you were saying. So I really enjoyed reading that. Thank you so much. You said just now that language is the way we conceive of self ourselves as ourselves. But you also talk a lot in your book about the role of language in perceiving the other, especially animal others and the non-human. So one of the challenges of work that is ecologically oriented is how to approach the non-human in an ethical way. I'm thinking about how even just the construction non-human already sort of defines the other by not being human, right? So this is something I struggle a lot with in my own writing. So I'm wondering what you think about other ways to address or describe or approach non-human others. You talk a lot about the role of metaphor in doing so in apprehending the animal. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So firstly, I actually really like the term non-human animals instead of just animals, because it reminds us that we are animals too. And, you know, so often you read, even in eco-critical work, you'd read just the word animals and they clearly mean non-human animals. So I do always like to stick the non-human in there. Otherwise, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? But I think it's always good to go for specificity wherever possible. So to talk about sparrows and spiders and sea slugs and recognize that there's this whole unfathomable diversity in what we so casually call the non-human world. But yeah, I think, you know, it is also a very useful shorthand since I'm not going to list 50 species every time I want to make some kind of comment about that. And with regards to metaphor, it goes back to what I was saying about literary language. So I think metaphor is a really good way to start thinking about non-human animals because metaphor explicitly acknowledges the gap in signification. So it points out that our language can't ever really grab hold of what it describes. And so in my chapter that's on animals, I look at two texts that have a lot of descriptions of, in this case, stingrays and a goshawk. And there's these cascades of metaphors that are trying to describe the non-human animals. And it's almost as if the strangeness and the liveliness of the animals sort of emerges from the gaps in these comparisons. It's as if metaphor says, yeah, I know I can't get there. I can't really capture this creature in words, but I can let this kind of lively language point in its direction. Coming off of that, so if attention to the animism of language can help us better relate to non-humans. You also mention commodity fetishism itself as animistic. And this was a point that I was really intrigued by. So I'm wondering if attention to animism can also help us better understand and maybe fight against the violence of capital, right? If we think about capital itself as animistic. 
Yeah. So both capitalism and commodity fetishism are types of animism. So the point of a radical animism is to say that animism is fundamental, it's ubiquitous, it's at the root of how humans understand and relate to the world. And that means that animism isn't inherently good or bad, but rather that there are both good animisms and bad animisms, and the latter maybe being animisms in denial. So animisms that don't realize or admit that they're animism. So yeah, with capitalism, we endow corporations with legal rights as if they're a person, even though they don't exist. They're just this kind of weird thing that we agree exists. They have no you know, material reality. We act as if the market is this being that has freedom and agency to kind of direct the course of things. But this is not really my idea. So Marx's commodity fetishism directly plays on that. So fetishism was a kind of animism before Marx adopted the term. It came from an 18th century French anthropologist called Charles de Brosse, who used it to name certain spiritual beliefs that worshipped rocks and trees and rivers. And so when Marx decided to talk about capitalism in terms of commodity fetishism, he was actually satirizing consumerism. He was saying, look, you think you're such an advanced, scientific, civilized society, but you're enchanted by objects. You worship commodities. So he's playing on the fact that fetishism and animism were seen as these kind of primitive belief systems and saying, look, you are no better than these people that you think of as primitive. So yeah, I think both capitalism as a whole and commodity fetishism are just kind of two more examples of yeah this more general radical animism that um, I've been trying to think about. Your mention of corporations as people made me think about something that comes up several times in many different ways in your book about the differences between intent, consciousness, and agency. That what we need by recognizing radical animism is a concept of agency that does not necessarily include consciousness or require consciousness. Can you talk more about the sort of relationships between those three terms? Yeah. So human consciousness, this self-consciousness, we kind of, and this is not through any fault of our own, it's more because our brains provide a very good illusion of this, but we, we conflate consciousness with agency, with free will. And that's because that's the illusion that our brain paints for us. And we kind of, you know, we know from neuroscience that this is not actually the case, that there's something like a seven second gap between your brain deciding to do something and that decision entering your conscious awareness. So this is kind of a more modern way to think about Freud's notion of the unconscious, this recognition that there's all this stuff going on underneath the linear and stable and a genteel self that we have. So yeah, on the one hand, you've got just because humans have consciousness doesn't mean that they are intentional agents or purely rational agents. And then on the other hand, you've got plenty of examples of agency that doesn't require consciousness at all. And one of the examples that I give in my book is from Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire, when he's kind of talking about the way that we see symbiotic relationships between other organisms. And so there's bees and apple trees and 
And so the bees are getting the nectar and the apple trees are getting their pollen dispersed. And he says, you know, we can quite easily see this relationship and we don't need to say, oh, one of them is controlling this. Rather, it's this kind of chancy co-evolutionary process. And actually, the same thing happens with our interactions with the non-human world, to use that term again. And so the examples that pollen gives are with agriculture. So for the grain grasses, we kind of clear vast swathes of forest to plant grain. And he kind of says, well, if we take the plants eye view, then it looks like we're doing it for them rather than for us. And it's just because we have this linguistic consciousness that we have the illusion that we're in control. But actually, these relationships are just as entangled as these relationships that don't have consciousness at play at all. So I'm wondering if you could speak about what you found the most rewarding about working on this project. I think for me, just the fun of the writing. So what I spoke about before, and this is just something that I have a broader interest in of like breaking down the opposition between creative and critical writing. I think that all language is creative. It can't help but be. So to be able to enjoy the writing in that way. And luckily my PhD supervisor, Nick, was very up for that as well. So yeah, I feel like I really had fun with the actual writing of it. What is the most important thing you hope readers take away after finishing your book? The strangeness and liveliness of language and literature. And I guess a sense of hopefulness about the current situation that grows out of that. Because although it is a very depressing topic, I hope it's also a hopeful book. And maybe actually I can just... So the subtitle, which sounds very apocalyptic, reading for the end of the world, also has this kind of double meaning. So the word world comes from the old Danish wereld. So that where is the same where as in werewolf, it means man. So wereld actually means means man age. So the word world is the age of man. So when I'm saying reading for the end of the world, obviously it can be read in this very apocalyptic tone. So a kind of mode of reading that is appropriate to this age of catastrophic climate change, but also a reading for the end of the world that is for the end of the age of man, by which I mean not the extinction of the human, but rather the end of an age of man with a capital M, this kind of human self that has been so pathological. So it's reading in this hopeful mode for a new world to emerge. Yeah, and that's definitely something that I feel is rare in eco-criticism. There's so much gloom and doom for the shorthand phrase, like a lot of feeling that things are a lost cause, I suppose is a good way to describe it. So that's definitely a useful counter or balance. And, you know, I definitely have days when I feel like that too, but I also feel like I need optimism and hope and joy. So I hope that I could share that with people too. So what's coming up next for you? What are you working on now? Fungi. Um, I am starting on a new project currently under the title Mycomorphism, Fungi and the Human Imagination. And I'm basically trying to think about how all fungi are mind altering, not just the hallucinogenic kind, that they have this kind of power to transform the way that we think. Mycelium, which is the only thing I know a little bit about that relates to this topic. Yeah. They are super interesting and just mind-blowing to me. 
but also really great for thinking about the Anthropocene. So, you know, you just talked about mycelium, but like the fact that mushrooms are just these visible fruiting bodies and the vast body of the fungus is actually underground in these underground networks of mycelium. I feel like that's a really good metaphor for thinking about the Anthropocene too, because we're being forced to recognize all these underground connections, all these connections that we can't necessarily see. And we just see these small little effects that come out in certain places. So yeah, that's where I'm going now underground exciting well thank you so much for talking with us about your book thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure that was Shelby Brewster and Jim Adir in conversation. Shelby Brewster just received her PhD from the University of Pittsburgh, where she was a cultural studies fellow. Jim Adir is a researcher in residence at the Rachel Carson Center and author of the new book, Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World. She also co-hosts ASLE's EcoCast and is narrator and associate producer of Shakespeare for All. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of Che, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Addie Hopes and me, Justin Huckleberry. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.